What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And thank you to everyone. Thank you if you've joined us for the first time or the 480th time or whatever episode we're on today. It's absolutely lovely to have you with us. And um, if you are a patron of ours, we would like to say a big, big thank you. And if you'd oh, like yes. to support this podcast, pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support get tons of extra goodies. And if you are interested in becoming an Academy member, we have a non-fiction program launching very, very soon. To, to get involved, you have to register your interest on the website, pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and, and write a non-fiction book with me over the next year or so. It's going to be the most craziest thing I think I've ever done. Can't believe I'm doing this, Mr. Stay, but I'm kind it, of it like might all it in might now. just change the world, Mr. Day. It might <laughs> just change the it could bring world peace. We're not, you know, in the next 12 months. So uh I'm expecting nothing less. Well, <laughs> no I'll, you know, I'll give it I'll give it a best shot, Mark. I'll give him a in for a penny, as they say, right? In exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally yeah, yeah. brilliant stuff. But no, it's kind of crazy. But the, interestingly, we've we've talked for many years about dream declarations. We encourage people to write, mm. and we do this as standard on the academy now. Every single person when you join the academy. You have to write down your dream declaration and it it really works. It, it, it kind of externalizes this idea that we're going to do something. And by saying it to the world, it's it's an accountability and we can't just turn around and say, ah, oh, I'll do that later. It's like, no, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. showing up to do it. And you know what? You know what, Mark? Another year for me is tripping over very shortly. And there's, there's no time like the present to be getting on with this kind of stuff because Indeed. life is too tick, short, as we know. Tick, tick, tick. Yes, tick, it's tick, far tick, too bloody short. Get on with it, folks. Tick, tick. Get on with it and make the most of this day, this week, this month, and this year. Um, talking of which, you're certainly making the most of events at the moment, aren't you, Mark? Blimey, yeah. I'm, I'm such a tart in November. It's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, we're recording this just a couple of days before I go to the MCM Comic Con and behind me are just boxes of books and stuff that I'll be taking there. But after that, uh, I'm doing a whole bunch of things. Uh, so the Little Green Bookshop in Herne Bay, I'm going to be talking to Leslie Ann Jones about her book, Fly Away Paul. That's on 2nd of November. On Thursday, 9th of November, that's Ashford Library. I'm going to be with Gabby Hutchison Crouch talking about fantasy, writing fantasy, humorous fantasy. Then on the 16th of November, I'm going to be on a panel with Jen Williams and Alice Chow, A.Y. Chow. Uh, we're going to be talking about the roots of fantasy. And then on Thursday, 30th of November, I'm going to be talking to Robert Rankin about his career. It's a lot to take in. I'm just going to put, if you go to my diary page on my website, it's all there. Tickets all there. are available. It's uh, basically what, what a lot of this is, is the British Library is doing a whole thing about fantasy. It's a series of events uh. called Fantasy Realms of Imagination. And Surrey Libraries came to me and, and Kent Libraries came to me and said, do you want to do some events? I said, yeah. And so I picked all, you know, some, some, some authors that I thought we could have 
have a good chinwag with about fantasy. So and we were um, talking just how brilliant libraries were just last oh, week. Oh man, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and here we here they are giving opportunities to authors, opportunities for people and readers and fans to come along and meet people. I think it's absolutely brilliant. So it's superb. It's going to be great. Big thumbs up to the British Library and uh, and anyone else who's doing events like this, which just gets people out, gets people into bookshops, gets people meeting authors, inspiring. Because you know what? It's not just about meeting authors. It's not just about readers popping along and getting an opportunity to chat with one of their favourite authors, get a signed copy of the book, get a photo. It's also about a lot of those authors, you know, a lot of the authors that are sitting there doing the book signings, they were in the audience of these things Completely. 10 years ago. Well, and, I tell, I, have, I, have, I told you my, have I told you my Robert Rankins? I'm sure I've told you my you Robert Rankins. You have, but it, mention it again because it, it was It bears repeating. It does bear. <laughs> it's a good one. I mean, uh, I, I'm getting to interview Robert at the end of November, uh, a library event. It's very, very exciting for me. And I love Robert dearly. And when I was a bookseller and I hadn't even finished anything, I was writing plays and dabbling with the idea of putting on my own plays. And, and um, he came and did an event at Waterstones in Epsom where I was the events manager. And we're backstage. And I love Robert's books. I got them all. And I said, oh, hello, Robert. Um, I'm Mark and I'm... I'm well, I, I'm sort of writing and I'm writing plays and I'd like to write novels like yours one day. And he was he was very patient and kind with me. And then when the event started, he was talking about writing. He said, and, uh, you know, writers like my friend Mark over here is a writer. So he singled me out as a writer. And uh, I mean, immediate, you know, imposter syndrome. But it, was, it did inspire me. I thought, right, well. Robert Rankin thinks I'm a writer, so I'd better bloody be a writer. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It and it was, and it's, it's little gestures like that that make all the difference. Oh, it's always the small things. And um, we, I've coached on this actually a couple of months ago. We were talking specifically about this idea of imposter syndrome. But mm. we're also talking about external validation. This is idea that it sometimes just takes someone who isn't your mum, your brother, your sister, mm. your, your, yeah, yeah. your best friend who supports you in whatever you do. It's someone who you maybe admiring what they do and it might not be directly related you know in your case it was which is makes it even better but sometimes it just needs that person on the outside to give you that little ray of confidence and because you know they've done it you might start believing that you can do it and i've seen these little sparks go in, in people's like eyes and you just know that something's changed yeah, yeah, yeah. and it actually every single author that we interview there's a point we should we should ask, start asking this question. There's a point in which wh when did that spark happen? Like the, your Robert Rankin story is an example. Every author will have that story, and I know we, yeah. we a lot of authors have told us what theirs is, but it never ceases to amaze me just how mm. magical how these things happen. So so yeah, get out and support your local authors, and uh, and also get out there. It's a bit like going to an open mic night in some ways, isn't it? And and seeing other people <laughs> getting up on stage doing anything. Maybe I should give it a go. Maybe I should write yeah, a book. That could be so, me one day. And speaking. Speaking on, of open mics, uh, how's the comedy going? Uh, last session tonight, I have a <laughs> comedy sketch of five minutes long, Whoa. which is a true story, which can't be repeated, unfortunately, on this podcast. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll oh how convenient. A, let me give you a few. Yeah, I know, right? Totally. <laughs> let me just give you a few tasters of what this sketch is about. It's actually about a journey that I did with my family when my kids were very young. They were about, I think, uh, there were the two of them at the time, and I think they were uh, nine months old and about two years old. And we'd flown to North Carolina for a family reunion on my, my wife's side. 
but my daughter um on <laughs> we went to 7-eleven and we we purchased they wanted a slushy a slurpee a, yeah, yeah, a slush yeah, yeah, puppy yeah. right and they have these things in 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 7-eleven called big gulps now mark if yes. you've ever it's enormous, like, if you've yeah, never yeah. seen it it's like the equivalent of a family-sized kentucky fried chicken bucket basically and here's the scariest thing the scariest thing is the rental car that we had actually it actually fit in the cup holder i've never seen a car <laughs> anyway cut along See, i'm short. laughing okay good good, good. it's working right so I'm, not, I'm not doing a routine but but so the when we then have a six hour drive a six hour drive from the airport to the place we were staying on the coast and about three hours in, after my daughter had inhaled this big oh, gulp, God. like crack cocaine, um, <laughs> we started hearing the tummy ache pains in the back seat. Yeah. And let's just say that we had to pull the car over, an emergency. And the only place where we pulled over, it was this big open road. And there was a church and a graveyard and absolutely no <laughs> toilets whatsoever. <laughs> so imagine the scene. It just gets worse. It gets oh, that's worse. Good. That's a good situation. And, and, and so it, 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 I have to basically midwife um, over a two-hour period. This is a true story. I had to midwife this, what I'm calling toddler turd, in oh. a graveyard, <laughs> and and then had to bury the evidence because I found a spade. But at the point I was digging a <laughs> hole in the graveyard to bury it, a cop car came past. And that's how the story continues. And Brilliant. I can't tell you what Brilliant. happened next. Anyway. Excellent. Oh, good luck go. tonight. Good luck. That's good. That's a good, that's a good, you can get they that always, down to a tight five. They always say, write great. what you know, right? Exactly. So there we go. Yes. I've learned, yeah, I've learned yeah, something yeah. from this podcast, but so that's my story. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever be doing it live anywhere in the region, but uh, I'm good sure it'll be recorded and probably end up on YouTube, God forbid. But, um, <laughs> brilliant stuff. Anyway, let's dive in and talk about this week's returning guest. Yes, Michael, Michael R. Miller. Well, he first appeared on the podcast, episode 170, where we did a deep dive about starting your own publisher. And I've known Michael for quite some time now. And I've, it's been one of these things, we've got to get it back on, got to get it back on. Well, finally, we've done it. And, and Michael, well, he hails from Scotland's wet and wild West Coast, and he writes sweeping epic fantasy. And since 2018, he's sold over 330,000 books, topping Amazon and Audible charts along the way. In the past, he's worked for Bloomsbury Publishing. He is the co-founder of the digital publisher Portal Books. He's written the Dragon's Blade trilogy and now returns with Defiant, the third book in the ongoing Songs of Chaos series. Not a trilogy, as I get horribly wrong at the beginning of the interview. Um, So we discuss, among other things, what he's learned from being a publisher, how his writing ended up in an exam anthology next to Jane Austen, and how his new series got its own Dungeons and Dragons campaign. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Let's dive in and listen to Mark Chang with the inventive and incredibly successful Michael R. Miller. Michael R. Miller, welcome back to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? Very good, Mark. Yeah, it's great to be back. Fantastic stuff. And look, a lot a lot has happened since we last spoke, not least the completion of the Songs of Chaos trilogy, which began with Ascendant, continued with Unbound, and now you've got Defiant, the third part that was published in July, just passed. You've sold over 330,000 copies. You've been in the top 100 of all books on Amazon and Audible. It's been an amazing success. You must be over the moon. Tell us about the trilogy and the challenges in completing it. Well, first of all, it's not a trilogy. It's actually going to be five books. Uh, so there's a there's a little while to go yet. Yeah, <laughs> okay. we're only halfway, <laughs> technically. Yeah, um, 
Well, it's weird, isn't it? I think the assumption is if it's a fantasy series, it's sort of you assume it's going to be a trilogy, I guess. That's I think true, a lot yes. of people have assumed that. Um, and I suppose when I started this ending back back when I started it, I, I was prepared to have it be a trilogy, but it, because it did quite well and I could expand the story and expand the series, it's going to go to five books, uh, which I'm excited about. Um, and Define, getting Define, the third book, out is a huge milestone because you know, number three would normally be the end for many series, for many trilogies, and it would be very cathartic. But this is like the halfway point. But actually, it feels like I've gone over the hump in the series in some ways. Like the, the middle, the muddiest part of the middle is, <laughs> you know, literally a book, a whole book is the muddy middle. And having gotten that out of the way, it feels really great. So, um, yeah, so there's a while to go yet. And you talk about the muddy middle for, for most authors the muddy middle might be maybe 10 20 000 words in the middle of their novel <laughs> um what i love is and do check this out uh, listeners M- michael puts stats up on his website and you say the first draft of defiant yeah. was three hundred thousand words the final edited draft was two hundred and fifty thousand words that's one hell of a muddy middle these are not short oh, yeah. books but your readers love the epic scale i mean this is uh this is what they expect isn't it yeah, if you I think if you're writing an epic fantasy, you're allowed to go longer so long as you can keep the pace relatively, you know, relatively uh, crisp and you don't start dragging and it doesn't get too bloated. And if you can get that right, people do love it. People love it that it's long and yet it's also page turning and they really want to know what's going to happen. Um if you can nail that, yeah, people love it, uh, especially in audio, of course. Um but yeah, it's, it's it's what that market, it's what that audience, it's what those readers really want. They want nice, big, thick books that they can really sink into, immerse into, and get lost in the world and the whole the, the, the epicness of the story. Well, you mentioned audio there. You, I know you do brilliantly in audio, and does that have something to do with the length as well? The fact that you can escape for thirty plus hours or whatever in in this fantasy world, and and who, what sort of people are listening to to that kind of audio? So the length is, so it is epic fantasy. So regardless of what format, you're going to be writing longer books, right? That's kind of a given. With audio, there is some economics to it in that um, I, I self-record and um, I self-fund the productions of my audio, which is quite unusual, even for indie authors. And I self-publish those on the platform called ACX, which is kind of the KDP for Audible. Mm. And the way that they pay out, um, they pay out roughly based on Per credit sale, most most sales in Audible are uh, bought by credits from members, and so you're compensated on some kind of calculation, which is we don't know the calculation; they don't reveal that to us. But it's got something to do with length, and so under ten hours, it's approximately so much. Between ten to five, uh, twenty hours, it's approximately five dollars out, and when you get to twenty hours plus, you get approximately six dollars out, and it wiggles a little bit. So my very longest box set. At forty-seven hours, get six dollars twenty. But you don't, you don't get much more out if you go over much more than twenty hours long. But if you hit that twenty-hour mark, you are going to get the highest payout that you can get as it stands in the current setup. Um, so on balance, if you know, if you were writing a book and you were going to self-record everything, and your book was one hundred and eighty thousand words, you that might just get to twenty hours if the narrator, depending on the the narrator's speed, but you may want to add a little bit just to try and get it over the line that, you know, you may want to consider that. So it's, um, but the books are the size they are because they're too they're massive and uh, <laughs> I've maybe expanded it quite a bit, but uh, there is that, to, there is that consideration for sure. Um, who's listening? Um, 
And then, so I think, I mean, most of the sales are from the from the States. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that people have these really long drives. Like, you know, in the UK, we have commutes here, but an hour on the train feels long to us, but people commute that in their car. Mm-hmm. That would be a shorter commute in the US. I know um, people that just drive that every day, you know, to work, uh, more than that, an hour and a half to work. Uh, truckers are a big audience for audiobooks yeah. of all genres because they have just hours and hours, endless hours driving. So audio really helps them. Um, I know that um, I have quite a lot of families who listen to the books on long car drives because it's a sort of series that younger people, not 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 kids, not little kids, but kind of teenagers and younger folks, maybe 12 and up, can listen to it. They can really enjoy it, but it's also the adults like it too. It's kind of written to be a little bit ageless, um, a little bit timeless and not... Um, uh, I'm not putting in very, a lot of graphics. There's no graphic sex. There's no sex at all, really. There's no even too much allusion to that. There's no swearing. There's, of course, violence. There's 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 warring and stuff, but I don't get hugely graphic. I like to sink into the emotions of what's happening and make you sort of feel about it. But that just that just tends to make the, the book more, more um, acceptable to all audiences. And I think a, a big part of my audio audience is families listening to it on long drives because the parents like it too so that's obviously helpful um and then there'll be everyone else in between but yeah i think people doing long journeys um it helps and so yeah if you've if you've got one credit and you're going to spend that one credit on a book on audible first of all people like it to be longer because Mm -hmm. they get more value for their credit that's how it's perceived um and then they're going on these long car rides so the longer it is the more they can sink in so i think that does play a part i mean if you look at the Audible charts, um, going to say the top 100 of all Audible, you typically find a lot of um, epic fantasy in there, which you wouldn't necessarily find on the ebook charts or the print charts. Mm-hmm. Uh, because because our genre has much longer books, I think it suits the audio market, especially the way the credit system works. Epic fantasy just sells disproportionately better in audio than other genres, which would flatten us and squash us on, on ebook or print. And you said that you self-fund the audio, which is extraordinary. Yeah. I know that certainly when we did Back to Reality, we used ACX and we did a profit share with the uh, narrator. Um, that's one way of doing it. But, of course, you can pay the narrator up front uh, and then you get a great share of the profits. I mean, when you're paying a narrator for a 47-hour um, audio book, that's, uh, that's a fair chunk of change, isn't it? That's, that's, that's quite, quite uh, an investment. Yeah, for, but it's, it's clearly it, paying off. Well, all up for well, the so the forty-seven hour box set is so that was three books in right, one. Gotcha, gotcha. And that the way that that worked, just the way that that happened to work, that was my first series, and I did the ACX narrator split with the narrator Dave Cruz at the time. Uh, but as I came to a certain point in that series life cycle, I heavily re-edited and rewrote quite big chunks of the first book before I put them together into the box set first as an ebook and then later as the audio. So because I had rewritten a lot of it and then polished it up to my then skill level. Uh, I asked Dave, would he be willing to record it? Uh, he said, this time I want to be paid, that's fine. So we worked out a deal where I paid him to re-record the first book, but he would allow me access to the other books to put into a box set. So the individuals are still up there as a split, so they get some sales still, and he gets his cut of that. But I, we worked out this deal so I could make... I, I essentially got the, the 46 hours for him a fraction of what it would truly have cost. Right, right. But Dave has been getting money from the from the other titles selling and getting his cut of that. So it's all kind of sort of washes out a little bit. 
if you were doing yeah 47 hour recording for one book all up front yes it would it would cost a fair whack but it does vary a lot you know narrators charge anything from a couple hundred dollars all the way up to a thousand dollars um and and narrators will sometimes do it all themselves sometimes they want to work uh, with a studio team um so it, it does vary quite wildly um but I, I would say a good a good ballpark for anyone trying to estimate this would be roughly $350 for a finished hour of audio is a good benchmark. You can definitely get it cheaper. You might find in the rate that's just starting out, perhaps. Um, but that's a good benchmark to use. Uh, and if anyone's wondering, one hour of audio is roughly 10,000 words. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Talking about words again. You mentioned first draft defiant was three hundred thousand words. The final edited draft was fit two hundred and fifty. That's that you ma- managed to cut fifty thousand words, which, as Ben Aronovich once yelled at me, is a novella <laughs> that he got paid for. Um, that's uh, that's quite a chunk. What's the challenge when you're editing books this long as well? The editing process, because I mean, the you know the way I work is I'll write it, then I'll put it away, then I'll reread it. Uh, and then I'll make notes, and then you got the proofread and all that kind of stuff. This is um, it's quite a mountain to climb each time, isn't it? What's your what's your approach to to, to these epics? Funny, wasn't you asked me this at an event at some point, and I kind of went through what I did, and you just you ended with, "Oh, so you edited it?" I was like, "Yeah, I guess that's <laughs> <laughs> that's what I did." <laughs> um, I think it helps that well, just the way that I, I work out, I, I don't have 300,000 words and then I tackle all of that at once. I'm, I'm kind of usually writing 50,000 words. Every 50,000 words, I sort of take stock as to where I am because sometimes then I've realized that something needs to change, um, something I need to foreshadow better that's coming later. And sometimes I'll just continue on with the intention to go back and make those changes. But oftentimes I'll go back and make some of those tweaks, especially very critical ones to the story. Because it's a bit like um, a maths exam that you can you can sometimes carry over the error and still get the marks, but I find if it's a very long book, if you write fifty thousand words, you try to carry you try to write on as if something's happened and it hasn't yet, because right. um, you haven't made those changes. When you get to another hundred thousand words later, you you start to lose track of exactly mm-hmm. the best notes in the world. You start to lose track a little bit. So I I tend to go back in stages, and by going back, working on the story, working on critical things. That involves reading those chapters and polishing them. So over time, very organically, the, the, some of the fat comes out and, and some of the polishing happens. Um, but when I say so, the 300,000 words would have been what the book would have been on the raw draft of every chapter if I hadn't been edited previously. So by the time I actually got a version of the book together, I'd done a big chunk of editing on it already. So it wasn't like I was having to go for 300,000 words all at the end because I'd right. been doing it in stages. Um, but the, 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 the funny thing is, like I, by the very last draft, as I was going for the very last time with the copy editor, I could not remember what had been cut, which just goes to <laughs> yeah. show that everything that went was was good. It had to go because it just I wasn't missing it at all. So you just edited it then? <laughs> I just edited it. Yeah, <laughs> just edited it. Uh, often, thought- often, I mean, I, one thing that I find I don't know if it's helpful to anyone, but I find like with on those first drafts, the dialogue is often. Uh, overwritten in the terms of people are reminding each other about who they are too much or right. it just doesn't flow as naturally. Like the, the beginning sections of any sentence 
is almost summarizing the previous sentence, which is probably how our brains work in order to keep track of things. But, um, you know, your mileage mileage may vary in that, but I think dialogue can often get trimmed down quite a lot and it will be a lot fresher for it. You really want to get that dialogue quite snappy, which also may help on audio as well. Absolutely. Now, not only are these available in digital and audio, yes. you've also got their paperbacks uh, too, but you've also got beautiful signed hardcovers with Broken Binding. And folks, we're hoping to get the people from Broken Binding on for a deep dive soon, so stay tuned for that. How did how did that come about? And and, and uh, tell us about those, those finished books. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting because when I first started, I first started really 2016, and there wasn't the print options for hardbacks. Back then there may have been, but it just wasn't very accessible. So it wasn't something I ever thought about. Um, and then around 21, it just they just sort of blew up. It just the, the functionality came in. Indies could make hardbacks and they could look just as good. They could look really good in fact. Uh, and people seemed willing to pay for them, which was also kind of surprising. Mm. Uh, and a friend of mine, an author friend, Ryan Cahill, who writes in a similar space, kind of dragon rider, epic fantasy stuff, he kind of got in touch with the Broken Binding really early on when they just started out. And the two of them together have kind of just catapulted their way into massive success. And he let me know that, yeah, they've been taking hardbacks off of me. And we do this, you know, you get you do the sign tipping pages and they, they, they bind the bed and everything. And people are buying them. And that sounded perfect because... I'd always, I'd never been able to offer signed copies before. It was just mm-hmm. too much of a faff, like trying to get people to pay for the website and then go to the post office and it's very expensive. And so they just seemed like a really great solution. Um, and, and Broken Binding, for those who don't know, they they sort of specialize in signed and special editions of, I guess, epic fantasy or high fantasy books. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just basically, the first time I just got in touch with them by email and we started with just book plates. So that's like the labels that you sign and they'll just sort of stick them into the book. That's the kind of, the, the easiest way to do it and the and the, risk, the risk-free way of doing it because they would order books as they needed them. And then those, those sold through. Um, so I met Matt who runs TV uh, Broken Binding. Uh, uh, FantasyCon, not, not this year, but last year. So FantasyCon um, in 22, and yeah, we, we talked about that. He mentioned that they were selling well, so he asked to get an order of hardbacks. You send in the hardbacks with special, t- you sign the tipping pages, you mail them in, send him the books, you work out, you know, work out how much you're going to, um, he's going to pay you. And it's all very good. He's very flexible and very good at, um, really good at being quite generous to indies when he doesn't necessarily have to be. He's a big supporter mm. in the office. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, yeah, just letting people know that they're there and, the only, the only slight wrinkle is I do have most of my readers are in the States. Broken Binding is a UK uh, bookshop. So the shipping for them is a little bit higher than, you know, we might like. But um, a lot of Amer- a lot of people in the US do subscribe to them and do buy from them. So they're, they're sort of used to it. And it is the it is the best way that it's the most efficient way that I can do it. it it's And it's really fun. It's really fun to go to the warehouse and sign a whole bunch of books. It just feels like a really cool offer thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I saw on your social media you were sort of surrounded by them. It looked fantastic. It's uh, it's it's one of those one of those milestones we like to tick off. You know, going to a warehouse. Absolutely. And yeah, it's a, yeah, definitely a bucket list moment for sure. Fantastic, brilliant, and not only that, Songs of Chaos has its own D and D campaign where you can play as a dragon or a rider. Now, am I right? Had this started as a Kickstarter? Is that how that came about? Tell us about that. So it came about. Uh, Christmas time 2021, uh, Wider Path Games, who's a small 
RPG developer just reached out. They wanted to do a 5e, a Dungeons and Dragons 5e setting, and they wanted to use an existing book to kind of base it on. <clears throat> and they liked they liked the series. They they liked this the magic system in it. The magic system in Songs of Chaos is relatively what we call hard magic. It's quite progression systems based. So there's there's elements of game mechanics in there. Um, so like you can sort of see how you could build um, a Dungeons and Dragons system out of it, I suppose, um, which they which they saw, which they liked. So they got in touch and just said, hey, do you want to do this? I thought that sounds really cool. Let's go for it. And yeah, so it started with a, it, it was last October. They launched the Kickstarter for that. Um, funded really fast. It was really awesome. I think about 500 people are backed it, which was really cool. Because um, I wasn't sure because people who read the books might not necessarily want to buy a Dungeons and Dragons version of it. Um, it turns out plenty did. And I think now yeah, it's released now and filled. The Kickstarter has been fulfilled. And now, yes, the, there's a print version of it on Amazon. There's a digital copy from the publisher's website. Um, there's figurines. People can get the, the little figurines and paint them. Wow. Yeah, it's really it's really quite something. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I, what I need is to actually get around to playing it. <laughs> I, need to, I need to find a little group to play it. <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes so you can check that out, folks. Um, as with as with D and D games, you know the magic system becomes that much more formalized. Is that going to affect the the next two books in any way? Does it does it sort of put uh, does it hem you in at all, or does it help in in any way? No, I just I just try to treat them completely separate because right. um, um, why the path with doing all the development based off of just books one and two? I hadn't I hadn't really written much of book three when they first reached out to me, and book three develops the magic system even further and adds new elements, which I just added in, irrelevant of how that would work in a D and D setting. Um, I don't really know how you, you know, I don't have that much experience of D&D, sadly. Like, I sadly haven't really had many opportunities to play it. So I guess it, it doesn't influence me too much. I'm writing the books the way I want to write them. Um, and hopefully they can still, if we, if things go well and they want to um, sort of do an update, an updated version later with the new stuff, hopefully they can slot it in. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Um the other thing I want to talk about, which we, we t- touched on previously on the deep dive, and, and listeners, I'll put a link to the deep dive uh, that you can check out, which was back in 2019, I think. Um, you were co-founder of Portal Books. Now, I know you're, you're not working there anymore, but Portal Books you know, was a digital-first publisher. How much has being a publisher affected your writing? Is there any part of you that thinks, oh, I I, I do that differently now. Now I know how the sausage is made kind of thing. Is, is that affected how you write at all? Not really. Not, not how I write. Not how I write. But it's affected how I think about just how books are taken on. I think just being having been on the other side of the table, I just have a sense of, like, I have a lot more respect and sympathy for publishers <laughs> <laughs> than I might have done before. And um, occasionally when I, when I hear people get salty at them, I... Yeah, there's, there's there's reasons to be, but at the same time, I know I know what it's like. Like I know when we were on when we were acquiring books, you all, you never really took a book on, assuming it was going to fail. You know, mm. you always yeah. you always had some hope in it. There was always something about it, whether it was the person you wanted to work with or the idea or the. And sometimes things don't pan out, and, it, and it's really hard. Mm. It's really really hard. Um, and there's not. It, there's not a huge amount. There's not always a huge amount you can do when it doesn't work. But, and I guess is the but. I just know that when when you're dealing with a larger catalogue, it's harder to to focus on any individual title. Mm. And there might be occasions where people 
um, who've, who feel that they are getting the support could benefit from the support. I know that they would, but it is hard when you've got a lot on your plate. Um, when you're at any point editing something, launching something, getting artwork for something, um, dealing with from the writer, whatever it may be. Uh, just being on the other side of the table, I, I, I'm sympathetic. And I, and I feel like I understand why um, some of the systems of advances and royalties kind of eventually through the kind of evolution of the marketplace kind of has come to where it is. And I can understand why those are very guarded and they don't want to, to just completely rip it up and start fresh. Because I can see in the indie space where there's a lot of digital first publishers where you start with the idea that you're going to give it lots and lots of high royalties. But then people who do very well want to start asking for more. And then yes. there's a point where you can't really give more royalties. So you have to stop giving advances. But then you're giving advances and high royalties. And then it's like, maybe we can't, maybe you can't do both. And so maybe it becomes, and then I, this, I can see this in the space. And then it becomes, all right, here's a bigger advance. You get a slightly lower royalty, right? You see where this is going? Um, <laughs> and I think I just, I think I can just understand where that, where that comes from. But on that sense of like, you, you take, you would take stuff on with the, with all the hope, with great optimism. And sometimes it doesn't work. And that is really hard. It is very, very hard. And I, I think um, maybe um, maybe some sympathy for the odd editor out there who, who is going to be as disappointed as you if it hasn't worked out. And and if it works, you know, it was their hard work too, like celebrate with them. I, I found mm. occasionally that if things went brilliantly well, you know, it was like you we didn't you wouldn't get a lot of this the glory you wouldn't get the glory sense hard but you wouldn't necessarily get a lot of the, the happy feelings it almost felt like a relief but yeah. when things went and when things went badly it felt really taxing very 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 hard on yourself yeah and to, but in terms of how that would affect how i write um i don't think it has but i'm i guess i am some, i i know that in my career i've been able to make some really critical decisions at key points that has a, absolutely helped in turn things around if i hadn't made those decisions and being able to take those decisions, such as um, self-recording or um, box setting or changing the covers, that sort of thing, um, I wouldn't be where I am today. So I'm very sympathetic um, to how it all works, but I know that I really benefited from having that control. So I know the the pros of the pros of both and the cons of both, and it just makes me. I, hopefully, I've got a holistic view of things, and I would never say no to either one. I'm kind of open-minded. Excellent. It's interesting you mentioned covers there because the Dragon's Blade covers, which I like very much, they feel much more like UK covers, whereas the song Songs of Chaos feel like a, a can can you talk about the, the difference there? <clears throat> yeah, so when when we did Dragon's Blade, um it's exactly what happened. The cover art the cover designer works with a lot of the UK publishers, um, everyone and everything and does every kind of genre. And you're right, they kind of look like more UK style covers where it's kind of like symbols. Mm. Um, flares of color, sort of this really cool graphic design, but not full blown illustration, and there's not a character face on it. And when I was publishing Dragon's Blade and including the initial box set, um, it did, it did eventually it found success that series, um, in the States, but relatively speaking, I seemed to sell a little not, not better in the UK. I was obviously the US was selling more, but it just seemed like I had a good bit of traction in the UK. And people in the US seem to be a bit iffy on the cover. I mean, I looked at a lot of the stuff that was selling well on the US side. It was, you know, illustration, characters. Yeah. So because Amazon and Audible only allow you to put up one version, so one cover, yes. 
one interior file, it it was it was like, well, it makes it it's very obvious. I have to do I want to target the US market. That makes a lot more sense. Um, Dragon's Blade was also UK English written and edited. Obviously, that's quite natural being from the UK. But for Songs of Chaos and everything since Dragon's Blade, I've deliberately written in US English and and as well to try and counter some of those things that you know people say, oh, this is a badly edited book. And you think, no, it's just it's because you because people can flag things on Amazon. They're like, this is an error. And the number of times people flag things that are just UK English is just astounding. <laughs> right. um, so yeah, to write in US English, I, I made the covers a bit more appealing, hopefully appealing to the US market. And it, and it has the inverse effect. So yeah, this Songs of Chaos sells brilliantly in the US. Um, it sells in the UK, but less so than Dragon's Blade did. And possibly because the cover doesn't appeal to readers here as much. Um, starting to change, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those funny things. And It'd be so good if they just let us have a US version, a UK version, you know, that would that would go a long way to helping with um, everyone's sales. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, as well as the Dragon's Play trilogy and the Songs of Chaos trilogy, you wrote Battlespire, which was a standalone and is billed as a lit RPG novel. Can you explain why you did that and what lit RPG is? So I wrote Battlespire because at the time, that's when I was deep into portal books in the early days and the rpg was what portal books was initially publishing um the rpg the best way to, the, it's one of those things that's really hard to describe and the best way to understand it is just to read one book of it and you'll suddenly understand it's a little bit like um it's a little bit like seeing someone on twitch playing a game and, and having a story out of it but really it, it's a bit like if ready player one had a lot more hard stats and hard magic to it, you know. So rather than because I think in Ready Player One the character levels up, but it's all off screen and you don't see it, and it doesn't really impact the story. It's kind of like a combination of that where the character would have been in a VR virtual world, but they interact with the game world like like it would be with like stats and figures and gear and equipment, but gaining more power in terms of your level and everything would affect your abilities and affect the story. Um, but there are stories that just, it's kind of like just super, super, super hard magic systems with actual numbers. But the RPG has kind of shifted slowly into just progression fantasy. So taking some of the, taking the numbers out of it and just making really hard systems where typically the character starts obviously at level one or at the very beginning of whatever power structure there is. And the idea is over the course of the series, you're going to see them go from the very beginning to like the top of the pile, the god tier, right. gain all the effects, all the abilities, all the power going through and going through the story. There's there's villains, there's heroes, there's, it's just big epic fantasies with very hard magic systems at this point. Um, and it's more, I would say now progression fantasy is more where it's shifted to, that kind of in-between state. Okay. But it was very much that thing of identifying a niche that was hungry for more. I think that's that's uh, that's what Portal was about to a certain extent, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, RPG kind of um, was really was really taking off around that time, and it was it was it was a really hungry audience, and we wanted to come in and um, offer really good really good books in the space that had great editing, great covers, and and really just um, give them a good time. And it, and it's what was really cool about that is at least. There's at least three offers, I think, that write just for portal books at the moment that are full time because of that, which is really awesome to to have got people there. And 
other folks have you know they might not be full time off of it or they are um maybe something else was successful but they're getting good they're getting royalties for it like it's helped people get into full time and be writers and mm. it's really fantastic um why i wrote battle spark yeah it's just because i was so immersed in it at the time i felt i want to write i want to try my hand at this um and it was it was the most fun i ever had writing a book it also was the quickest i've ever written a book it's i say only it's only a hundred and twenty thousand words um, <laughs> and i wrote that in about three months which was very fast um wow. very fast for me it just kind of poured out it was it was because i obviously i'm a bit i i love playing those kind of mmorpgs love world of warcraft all that stuff so it just felt really great to kind of just take all of that ambient knowledge and just kind of pour it into something um and it was it was built exactly as right you know a ready player one style story meets die hard it's exactly what it sounds like and it was a lot of fun to write. fantastic now we, you and i we caught up at FantasyCon recently and you yeah. mentioned FantasyCon earlier that's where you sort of got first got talking to the the folks at broken binding yeah you've been going to FantasyCon for quite a while what 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 do you get from those conventions and do you have any tips for anyone going next year which is in chester by the way and i bought my ticket so i'll be there um, oh, excellent excellent yeah um yeah i've been going i, I so my first fantasy con was in 2015 and it was like a month before I released the first book, and I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I had never been to one before. It just sort of felt like, well, I'm releasing a book. I should probably go to one of these kind of conventions. And it was uh, this sort of thing where I got there, and there was a bus to take you to the venue, but I didn't realize there was a bus, and I was wondering about like a lost man until someone took pity on me, <laughs> took me on the bus, and then I had a reading slot, but it was like at 11.30 p.m. on the Friday night, you know, that kind of one of those dead slots. Um, so it was an interesting baptism of fire but what what i got out of it was just at that point i hadn't really met anyone else that was writing at all in, in real life and i knew no one that, uh, that that was into that sort of thing too so just meeting people that are going through the same experience as you and um, going through the same um tribulations it's just it's, that can be nice it can be it's it's therapeutic mm. you make friends um and every time i always come away having either met someone new that i keep in touch with um learn something from a panel perhaps or just sometimes you're not even aware that you pick something up but i always benefit from going you you learn stuff you make friends um everyone hates the dreaded term networking you don't need to think of it like that but you 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 never know when meeting someone one year and then two years later an opportunity pops up maybe for a collaboration or mm. whatever it may be you meet you meet the guys at broken binding and they they become aware of you because this is the big world and they don't know where everyone is and certainly you start selling some hardbacks i mean it's just ample opportunity and it's and it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of fun we sit in our writing caves a lot mm. it's good to get out there and talk to talk to people going for the same thing fantastic now i know that you have um cystic fibrosis uh which is a, a challenge for for anyone uh and not only uh has it influenced your writing it's influenced your characters and the magic system as well in, in your series can you can you talk about that yeah sure try, i won't go into i hope i won't bombard it with too much detail but um so cystic fibrosis for anyone that doesn't know it's a respiratory condition um it means my lung people see i have lungs that are clogged up with too much mucus our bodies don't break it down so we're more liable to like infections and things like this um incidentally it's been there's a new treatment that came out during during COVID, actually, it was yeah. in the middle of COVID. This new treatment came out, which really cleaned it all up. And you know, every, a lot of people's life expectancy is now up until 
high 80s 90s like everyone else it's kind of normalized things in the way that's just it's brilliant it's completely life-changing but um prior to that you know one way to help clear your lungs is lots of exercise and lots of physiotherapy breathing techniques and so when i was building the uh, magic system in songs of chaos which is built off of bonding to a dragon. So the, the, the human riders bond to a dragon. This is obviously a, a classic trope in fantasy, dragon rider fantasy. Um, but what always struck me with a lot of those stories was that I didn't really understand why the dragons would want this to happen because it often seemed that the dragon had all the magic and all the power and the human just gets to kind of leech off that. <laughs> I was like, what, what's the dragon getting out of this? Exactly? You know? um, it works really well on how to train your dragon because Toothless gets injured and then he can't fly without Hiccup, because mm. Hiccup has to engineer the tail fin to allow yeah. them to fly. And that's kind of, that really sells like why they're so good together, because they really need each other. I was like, yeah, why, what if the whole system was based on this to some extent? So yes, the dragons in my world, they have the magical core, they, they bond with a human, and the human can access that magic and gain some magic, which is great. But what the human can do to help the dragon in turn is purify the core and increase its power. So I call that cleansing and forging. And they do this by doing different breathing techniques. And so I just took the breathing techniques from my CF physical therapy and had the rider, you know, suck in impurities from the dragon's core. And through doing the exact same kind of deep breathing techniques and all this and, and how it feels, it's called autogenic drainage, if anyone wants to know what it's called. And by doing that, they can expel all the gunk and all the crap in the dragon's core. And then they can push through the purified magic back into the core. And now the dragon is more powerful and stronger. So it was just a little, um, was just a little way to bring that in. Um, and I, during 2019, when I was writing the first book, I had a couple of stints in the hospital and I was doing it all the time. And it just clicked that I should just, you know, you're sitting there for like 20 minutes sometimes doing these, doing this breathing. And it would be meditative, well enough for the fact that you end up coughing a lot and, you know, having to expel a lot of, um, a lot of gunk. But it made me think, well, it's it's almost meditative. Why don't I just make that the meditation techniques? Um, and yeah, so it was able to do it. And with Ash, Ash being blind, you know, I'm not blind. And CF is not the same as other sort of things. And it's sort of a disability and it's sort of not a disability. And it it really wildly varies. And I've been fortunate to be on the, the milder end of the spectrum. You know, some people um, suffer really badly and in the past have to do lung transplants. Thankfully, never had to, to go down that road. but just with the just with the way that Ash, um, the the blind dragon, sort of thinks about you know living with something and, and and going through that and his experiences, I could just put a little sprinkle of of my experience in there, just just a little bit, just in terms of well, you gotta get up and get on with it anyway, and it's mm. and you know it's better to it's better to be here and having those opportunities and um, better to be around and and to really just not let it drag you down and just keep keep going, keep working hard, keep keep struggling. Because um, you've got to stay on top of it, and if you don't, it, it will get worse. So, yeah, yeah, you just gotta, you just gotta try. And, you've almost got that. You have to keep. You have to do everything you can to cope with it. But then, if, imagine it's not there, and just don't let it bother you, and don't, don't, don't dwell, don't dwell on it. And so, yeah. So, Ash, Ash has a bit of that in him as well. Fantastic, brilliant stuff. And just, just to finish, I think you might be after 400 and whatever it is and episodes and seven years over seven years of this podcast i think you are the first author who's had their work in, as part of an exam so you were contacted <laughs> by lambda which is the london academy of music and dramatic dramatic arts and they used a section of 
Dragon's Blade in their exam anthology. So how did that come? This came out of the blue, didn't it? I, yeah, I remember it's you telling me. out of the blue, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, 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 Lund just <laughs> reached out and they wanted to use a, a, a dialogue scene from the first book as part of their uh, um, performance exams. I, I can't remember what the, the kind of the uh, exam level was, but I think it's for people, I think it would be for folks like towards the end of um, sixth form in, in England, so probably right. like 17, 18, something like that. Um, and apparently just someone at Lambda, the, half their job is just reading books and plays and scripts <laughs> and then saying, oh, that would be quite a good section for this. <laughs> and God knows why, because I mean, it, it's absolutely crazy. But I mean, because then everything else in there seems like really, you know, like the, the titanic pillars of literature and, and genre fiction, you know. So it's like you've got like in, in that um, exam diet, there was like a section from The Hobbit. There was stuff from Harry Potter. There was Neil Gaiman stuff. There was Tolkien stuff. And then me. <laughs> it's like, are you sure? Uh, but it was, very, it was very, it was very exciting to do. And I think, um, yeah. In the in the in the actual booklet that I got sent, I got sent a copy of this sort of big, big um, the they put all the scripts into a little booklet for people to, I guess, they select which scene they want to do. Yeah. And so on on the right side is my section, and then the left side of the on the page is um, a Jane Austen excerpt from the Tanger <laughs> Abbey, which was just really odd and and really ba- kind of baffling and and, flat- and very flattering. Um, and yeah, just one of those one of those kind of cool cool moments. I guess there's like a if we're talking about bucket lists, that's something that I didn't even think would be on the bucket list. No. And managed, to, managed to tick something off. Uh, that's it was very, it was very cool. Yeah, just just completely out of the blue, just just a very um uh, and and nice and reassuring because that happened years ago. That happened, I think, just as the box set was sort of taking off. So it was a right. nice piece of validation after all that work. After about three years worth of work, it was kind of nice to have a a bit of validation from somewhere as well. Yeah, superb stuff. Superb. So what's next? I presume book four of Songs of Chaos. So how, how far into that are you? When can we expect that? <laughs> the eternal question. Um, yeah. I just broke ground in it yesterday. So I've just made a start. So I'm not too, not too far in. Right. Uh, in between book three and four, I was uh, working on two novellas, which will be available for free from uh, my mailing list. Both, both the ebook versions and the audio books will also wow. be free. Okay. For anyone that signs up, um, and then they'll release in a kind of combined print edition a little bit down the line. So that's sort of on its way soon. And now I'm starting book four, and yeah, it will be big again. It'll probably end up being about two hundred thousand words thereabouts. I'm hoping it will be uh, a smoother experience than book three. Now that I'm over that hump, over the hump. we'll see. We'll see. Yep, yep. Yeah. Hopefully, end of next year, but no promises. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Marco, it's been a joy speaking to you as always. Uh, thanks so much. And let's get you back on again soon. Excellent. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's great. Goodness me. Songs of Chaos, Mark. That sounds like the kind of thing you might watch on a Sunday afternoon on the... Yeah, you betcha. <laughs> totally. I'm there. 100%. <laughs> Kind of the, the alter the the alter ego of songs of praise. Songs of praise, know? yeah. Like, no, 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 no. Like? no. What songs of chaos. Like? It's, it's got dragons in it. I'm. I, that's oh. much more my uh, yeah thing. Yeah. There that was are. such an inspiring story from Michael. But it didn't. It, I've got this overriding question. I have to ask you, Mark. I have to ask you as a fancy writer. Yes. Is it obligatory to have an R as a middle initial if you're a fancy writer? <laughs> 
that's what I've been doing wrong all this time. That's you that's see, why the big sales have eluded me. I yeah, well, you know, I mean, Michael Millett's fairly common name, so he's got to put that in there. Uh, George R. R. Yeah, I suppose there's something in there. Yeah, J. R. Yeah. I mean, there's J-R, George. There's yeah, J. J. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah, goes yeah. on, and there's a lot more. It's a lot more. People are probably yelling them out right now, but we can't hear you. Sorry, we can't. <laughs> but I think I think Mark R. Stay has quite a ring, quite a ring to it, really. Don't you think? Bit, or bit how about close Mark? To, it's a bit too close to Mark R. Soul. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe you have to kind of. Maybe it's a bit like you got to one up. You got to one up people. So you've got to go for like four R's because what the th- records? <laughs> is it J. R. Actually, add. Adam Roberts has beaten you that because uh, Adam Roberts, the science fiction author, when I was at Orion uh, in the early 2000s, he did a whole bunch of parody books and he did a George R. 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 Martin book. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, it's, this is this is kind of on my mind at the moment because I'm writing something with another author and we are going to use a pen name. So we are thinking and we are thinking Ooh. the initial thing just to can keep it gender neutral. Oh, um, yeah, so we've got, we've got possible surname. We're just thinking of initials now. So is this one pen name for a collaborative project? Yes, it is. Oh, I'm yeah. interested to see how that, because we, we thought about doing that, didn't we? We thought about whether we were going to go with Back to Reality, whether we were going to go for one name. Oh, yeah, this would be yeah, very yeah. interesting. Well, hang yeah. on a minute. Why don't we just put it out there? <laughs> Have you done a collaborative project with someone and you used just one name? How did it go? Let us know. Let us know. Maybe uh, we can pick up some tips from that. That's fantastic. Now, one thing that um, jumped out for me, Mark said, and I love this, he said that in a first draft, the dialogue is often the thing that's overwritten. Um, is that you've experienced that as well? I mean, would you say earlier on, or is it always the case? Do you think when you're writing, is it always dialogue that gets chopped? I mean, your your your, your mileage may vary. Uh, I I like to. I think possibly because I come from screenwriting as well. I I like to really let loose on the dialogue and let people waffle, and then yeah, yeah, you can cut it back. The other thing I catch myself doing, one of the most common notes I leave myself, although I, I've managed to catch myself doing it sooner in the process, is I'll write the inner monologue of a character and they'll be thinking about their feelings, emotions, and then I think, actually, this would be much more fun as dialogue. Make mm. make the inner, you know, bring that to the fore because it sort of brings the scene to life. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I totally understand that overwriting the dialogue thing. I think it is quite a common error for, well, not an error. It's just a habit. And as long as you recognize it and are able to trim it back, then you're off to the races. So, uh, but yeah, it's something, uh, you can, you can let your characters maybe get a little bit carried away and sometimes you need to rein them in. I mean, screenwriting is, uh, ideally, Screenwriting, you should be able to write a scene with no dialogue whatsoever. That's always the aim. That that kind of purity of the silent hmm. movie yeah. where you, it's all told through drama and action. But uh, I'm I'm of that Tarantino ger- generation where people chatter on for quite a long time. Yeah, and I, I guess dialogue is also the easier target in some ways because if you've got somebody saying a line of dialogue, you could literally replace that with them saying one word. Whereas yeah. if you're looking at say descriptive scene you know forest and trees and river like you can't just compress that down and have that impact so maybe dialogue is the easier starting point to cut out some of the meat because there's always a easier way of saying stuff isn't there or short take 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 a leaf out of lee child's but what's that common line in in it's it reacher said nothing isn't that a common line in the Jack Reacher books. He I, says, oh, you know, I can just, that. Yeah, yeah, Reacher says that it's one that become a bit of a trope for him. So, yeah, yeah. That's excellent. Like it, like <laughs> it. And now also Michael talked about um, cystic fibrosis and and 
amazing story when you think about it and, and just mind-blowing that how you know in covid there have been these major breakthroughs which doesn't seem like it's a coincidence terrific, to me yeah. what with everyone no. like researching lung challenges and breathing um but i found it fascinating how michael takes his experiences of something that has you know happening in, and has happened from for a lot of you know he's gone through this journey and he's using it to bring a unique perspective on his take on characters or parts of his story um yeah. it's a fascinating thing that i think it's a great way of making good you know taking something that's obviously not positive in your life and, and using it as a positive thing yeah in your the, writing. The, the, the the quote that jumped out to me was when michael said it's a sprinkle of my experience so he's not laying it on thick he's not you know, uh, lecturing or hectoring or anything that, but he's taking something that is a challenge in his life and he's applying it to, and he's, he's basically, he's being truthful. He's being truthful about something in a way that could be exposing, could be, um, you know, it's, it's always, it's whenever you put something that you might prefer to keep to yourself into mm. your fiction. There's always a kind of uh, a level of exposure because if someone leaves a one star review or is snarky about it, you, you're like, "That's that's who I am. That's kind of at the core of who I am." And uh, uh, and and I think what's wonderful and what many authors will find is is when you you are truthful like that. It, it pays dividends because the reader recognises it. They may not be familiar with yeah. cystic fibrosis or whatever you know challenge you have in your particular life, but they will recognise the nugget of truth at the heart of it. They, yeah. I think, readers always know when an author is uh, is 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 being truthful about something. It isn't laying it on. Isn't isn't kind of pretending. And that stuff is always um, always always pays off. I think. The thing I find interesting is that. When I read something or I see even a show on TV and it's something that I've experienced in my own life and, and truly experienced it, like gone through it, through all the stages of it, whatever it might be, I know, it's like Spidey sense, you know that the person who wrote that has experienced something similar. And that might not be exactly yeah, the same, that's, but they've experienced about, yeah, the emotion. Yeah. And, yeah. and that then connects me in a different way firstly i think oh they get it yeah. you know and so anyone so anyone reading what michael's you know what he's sprinkling in it might not be around cystic fibrosis but it might be around some other challenge that physical yeah. challenge or you know disease or something that somebody else has and and it's that common thread of what we experience as human beings going through these this journey and i think that's where like, like you say, it doesn't have to be like the whole, the whole, the meal. It's like just the topping that you know that that person, and it also kind of for me, it creates a curiosity, and I think, oh, I wonder what they experienced, and I wonder what they've been going through, and it bonds you to them in some in some deeper way. And just to flip that over, it doesn't mean that to be a good author, you need to have had a life that's full of you know challenges and overwhelming you know woe and misery. Uh, because we do perpetuate this myth of the the you know the genius, the tortured genius who creates yeah. great art. Uh, I I don't think you need that at all. I think people who lead perfectly happy lives can write great fiction. But as as I've said before, I think you do need to have lived a bit. You do need to have had a crappy boss, maybe experienced grief, and have had your heart broken. I think those are the kind of the three essential elements because those are such common experiences mm. that 
you know, they they represent the most basic challenges of of our lives. You know, having some authority figure, having a heartbroken, and having experienced, you know, end, end of life. So uh, I I think those things really help, which is why. You know, when I was writing as a teenager, all I could write were sort of rip-offs of movies that I'd already watched because I hadn't <laughs> gone through any of that. But, yeah. you know, when you come out the other side, you know, when when um, your mid-20s spits you out and you've been through a few of these things, you're mm. kind of like, yeah, I've got I've got some calluses now. I've got some yeah. things that I can talk about that I've got some experiences that I want to share. Yeah, and of course, experiences can happen at any age as well. I mean, you true, know, true. I, that I think yeah. it can. I mean, I was kids. very lucky. I've I've got I've I was you know I had a great childhood. I'm not. Yeah, and me here. too as well. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think I think there's also a period. I must I must say I think there's a period of marination after the event or experience that happened that you go through and you get some perspective on it as well. You've kind of gone through the challenges of it and then you can kind of look back on it. And I think that's where a lot of the wisdom drops in. It's sometimes mm. hard when it's happening because you're kind of in this fog, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, fascinating. And we've got, we've got an author coming on in a few weeks, Mira Shah, who talks about this very eloquently. Uh, so that's something to look forward to. Fantastic stuff. Brilliant. Mm. Let's talk about conventions as well, because I know this mm. is a thing that you've done. I mean, you're going to one this weekend, um, and you met Michael actually, didn't you? Is this how is this how yeah. you first got yeah. to know him? And this, I, so I think it was a, networking East, opportunities, right? Yeah, it's it's uh, Eastercon uh, years and years ago. My, my, Michael just came up and said hello, introduced himself. We got on like a house on fire, uh, and it's uh, it can be terrifying frankly if you go to one of these things you don't know anyone mm -hmm. uh but i think the key is to keep going back because year after year you'll see you more you'll see your peers friends. you'll see yeah yeah, yeah it's, exactly it's a community and within a community isn't it really it's a sub-community of a bigger community but yeah oh, and you get to a point as i did at fantasy con where actually on the last <laughs> sunday i i I didn't go to any of the parties or anything. I sat in the lobby with a cuppa and people kept walking past and I got I got to talk to Michael, I got to talk to Philip C. Quainter, I got to talk to all these authors. You know, I had a really good time, met a few new ones as well. It was really great. It was like it was like a like a you know, a rolling uh sort of, you know, Carousel authors rolling by. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> They often say they often say that's the best thing to do is don't go around looking for people. Just stay in one place and let them find you. They'll right? come to you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, Mark, he's in the lobby. He's in the lobby yeah, with his cuppa. Again, but um, <laughs> I think it's important for people who've never done. I, I've I've done a lot of conventions in my life, and I've always enjoyed them. I mean, they they can be quite tiring. I think you know you can come back and you can have a bit of a headache, and it's a lot of energy that you use up in a in a whether even yes. if it's a day or a weekend. Those ones at Earl's Court, I always remember when I used to go to those, and the the the, the Noise just it used to be music conventions as well, so you can just imagine oh, yeah, some life. bloke whittling on a, a, a fender strap with, with the amp, and they'd have demonstrations. And but it doesn't work in a conference environment where you've got like 16 <laughs> companies all giving musical demonstrations at the same time, oh and you'd be literally God. like ears would be bleeding. But I can, I can imagine it's a little bit more. Um, well, I mean, that. There's, there's two. I mean, you have things like Fantasy Con and Easter Con, which usually at a hotel, and all the meetings and and panels are happening in little separate rooms. Yeah, and the corridors are always bustling. You know, people going back and forth from one thing to another, and they're usually partying in the evening, or, or there's always food to be had or whatever. Uh, but then you got what I've got this coming this week, which 
if you're listening to this, just happened last weekend, is the MCM Comic Con, which for me is going to be three days because I've got a table for the whole weekend. So that's three days of me sitting behind a table. <laughs> To, you know, hopefully selling enough books to cover my costs and then yeah. some. Because uh, it's not but, cheap, is it, to get a table at these things? Well, it used to it be varies. free. Back in the day, oh, I used really? to go with Kit Cox and we got a table for free because oh. he knew someone and it was brilliant. And, and that was when I had like one or two books to sell. It was <laughs> uh, it was right when I was starting out and that Kit had a whole sort of series and I'd see how well he was doing. I was thinking, well, I need to write series. We'll come back to that and extend it. Um, and, uh, uh, and it was great because you just it's a great way to meet readers in this case so you know comic cons and stuff like that you get to meet your readers whereas uh things like easter con fantasy con world con you're meeting your peers you're meeting a lot of uh well there are lots of fans there but it's where the authors gather as well and agents and publishers and i mean you know uh, uh michael's talking about he met the guys from broken binding Mm. And yes, we do have a deep dive with the broken mining people coming soon who do these brilliant hardcovers, uh, you know, luxury editions, which are signed and their maps and extra stuff. And funnily enough, uh, Mike Shackle, who lives in your neck of the woods, he came over to the UK just last week. I had a couple with him and he went up to Broken Binding and he signed about 3,000 copies of his. And 3, Michael signed his copies. Co- I know, it's oh astonishing. So RSI. they've. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> But uh, you know, Michael's got these wonderful deluxe editions as well. So it's um, it's yeah, one Shannon of these things. Shannon doing it as well. She's just released box sets on Kickstarters, and she's doing incredible turn of like fifty thousand yeah. dollars worth of like on these beautiful like box sets of like mm. limited editions. It's the way forward, I think, isn't it? As as we move more yeah. digital, everyone is crazy. It's like the vinyl. In some ways, it's like the vinyl. Absolutely, of, yeah. Of writers, so this is where it's yeah. going. And this is the thing that you know. If I do, I've, I'm working on a uh, an idea for a new series now, and there's a part of me thinking, I'm going to do all I can do to retain that. the hardcover rights. But I'm, I don't want to give it away to a publisher who's not going to yeah. use it. I, I yeah. want to retain those hardcover rights and do something special with them. Well, one thing we should talk about in future weeks is you know whether there's a there's a kind of a whole separate. You've got hardcover um, paperbacks, but is there a whole other version called collectible which the owner can mm, the, the writer can still yeah, keep yeah, yeah. and do that on say kickstarter or something like that well i've noticed that golance have started doing this as well the mm. golance have started releasing big limited editions of well, some of their biggest sellers you know brandon sanderson's a lot to answer for i really think a lot of this has spurned out of his insane millions of pounds that he raised in kickstarter by doing some very high-end versions of uh, of his books and yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think Broken Binding were doing it first. I okay, that, so maybe yeah, that came. Yeah, I don't know the origin yeah. of it, but that is yeah, that's yeah. good to know. Fascinating I think, stuff. I think, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. we'll we'll watch this space, folks. We'll be we'll be delving into that a bit later on. Mm. Uh, also, before we dive into the extended, I just I always like collecting milestones. It's like my it's, it's the thing I like to collect. Unusual milestones in particular. This idea of getting in a school exam. Now, I've not heard that one before. I've heard That's parking canes, one, parking canes outside <laughs> library appearances and, and radio station appearances. I've heard about people dressing up as one of your favorite characters, mm. as one of their favorite characters, and coming for a book signing. That's a cool milestone. School exam paper. That's going to take a lot of beating. That really is. That's a tough one to topic. <laughs> I, like I don't know how you wangle that one, but that's a great one. And he showed yeah. me the booklet, and there he is. It's like Jane Austen on one side, and then there's, there's Michael. It's terrific. So, so, so in the milestone list, as I've mentioned this before, is I'm launching in the academy like a, a, a way of tracking milestones in the writing process. But we're going to have – it goes not just from like writing the first chapter and getting this many words. It's also about – 
you know, the crazy stuff, like winning the Pulitzer Prize could be a milestone on someone's dream declaration, for example. But creating this list of like the oddest, strangest milestones just for fun, the parking cone, we've got the uh, character dress up and now school exam paper. So if you have something that is odd or fun, which is not usual, let us know because I'd like to add it to the list to inspire people to go for some wacky stuff as well because, you know, that's that's the fun part of it as well. I'm sure there's a ton of things like this, Mark. Mm. I don't know if we're opening the floodgates here, but I bet you there's all kinds of weird and wonderful wacky things that have happened to writers, which which they'll, they'd, they'd remember for the rest of their life. So yeah, I think Absolutely. it'd be fun to, to dive in. Now, folks, in the extended, we are going to delve into the self-publishing audio. We're going to talk a little bit about our experience at the Back to Reality and, and delve a bit further into Michael's experiences. We're also going to talk about UK versus US cover art, language, the different things that come up, relevant for both sides of the Atlantic and beyond as well. We're also going to talk about, Mark's going to deep dive in whether series, trilogies or standalone is what you should be looking to do. And that is a very, very, very important thing to be considering at whatever stage you're at in writing books. So if you'd like to join us on the deep dive, simply pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support, sign up to the patron and you can get access to the full episode. So, Mark, what's happening on wins this week? A couple of great wins over on the Academy. Zoe Richards. Uh, Zoe's been so much fun at our surgeries and craft coaching, uh, and um, she's been in the edit trenches. And I know she was really worried about this first edit, and we've had conversations about it. And uh, she's went through her edit and used the edit course on the Academy. So lots of hints and tips there. And just a couple of days ago, she got in touch. She said, I got feedback from my editor. And I can breathe again. I didn't mess up the novel when I worked on the edits. Phew. And she got a note from the editor saying, just a little update to let you know that I'm working through line edits and I'm loving it. Your responses to my content edits have been executed beautifully. Thank you for the care and attention you gave them. The book is feeling really smooth and strong now. Now, a couple of things there. One, to get a note like that from an editor is the wind beneath your wings, you know, it's oh. such a relief to get something like that. And also that's a good editor to do that. That's a keeper. That's someone who understands what you're going through, particularly if it's your first time, that kind of yeah. trepidation of I've sent my edits off. Have I completely nosed this up? Have I completely ruined my book? And no, she hasn't, you know, and Zoe, like I say, such a treat speaking to her in, in the Academy every week. Um, so Zoe, congrats on that. Well Brilliant. done for, not screwing it up. No, <laughs> Not that I ever great. had any doubts. No, but it's huge, isn't it? And like you say, I was chatting with Zoe yesterday in the uh, life coaching on the Academy, and she said, I can't believe my editor was actually thanking me. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> so brilliant. Absolutely excellent stuff. And really, really great to see how, how, how things are progressing for her. Very excited for when her book comes out. Super, super. And a lovely little win from Melissa Stone. Uh, in the Academy as well. I say little win, but she says, I finished writing my first micro short film script. She says she took a class with writer-director Josh Stolberg and part of the class is focused on filmmaking along with writing. It's a funny little short in the vein of Desperate Housewives and Why Women Kill. But this is, you know, I know we um, talk about screenwriting a lot in the Academy and the thing I always say to people, write a short and make it yourself. See if you can make it. You're going to learn so much going from paper to production to edit. It's a rewrite every time, essentially, you discover something new. So that's terrific. And congratulations on that, Melissa. That's, uh, yeah. that's a really, really great one. Brilliant so, stuff. Yeah. That's excellent, excellent stuff, folks. So we hope you're feeling inspired this week. We hope that this incredible interview with Michael has 
given you some wind beneath your your wings as well. And really, you know, as we said before, this is what it's about, folks. It's about getting on with it, making it happen. We're here to kind of give you that little pep up and inspiration each week with the incredible guests that we have on the show. But let's make this week count. Absolutely. So um, if you'd like to join us and find out more about uh, future episodes coming up and episodes that we've had coming out, pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the newsletter tab. And whilst you're there, click on a 200 word challenge link and find out all about the free challenge we have where we challenge you to start by trying to write 200 words every day for seven days and then beyond. And uh, if you're doing, as will probably be like by the time this episode comes out close to November, you might be doing NaNoWriMo. Um, Good luck with that as well. If you're taking that on, we know that a lot of people have a lot of success with that. Um, and uh, for everyone else, if you're not doing it, then 200 Word Challenge might be your cup of tea as well. And Mark, how can people find out about us on socials? Okay, so Facebook, we are Bestseller Experiment. Twitter, Instagram, Threads, we are at Bestseller XP. Come and say hello. Let us know what you're doing. Uh, leave us comments about the show or anyone who's inspired you. And if you've enjoyed today's interview with Michael or any of the hundreds of authors that we've had on the podcast, do give us a rating or a review and please subscribe. All of those things tickle the algorithms in all the right places and help make us more visible and help more writers, again, bring world peace. That's ultimately what we're doing here, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. brilliant. (laughs) Excellent stuff. So great, folks. Have a brilliant week this week. It's an absolute pleasure um, being with you again this week. Bring your friends and we'll speak to you this time next week. So goodbye from Mark 1. And goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye.